are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing elder law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of elder law, marketing, and practice development. Welcome. Today, our topic is the SECURE Act, and our guest is Mark Worthington. Mark is a senior counsel at Special Needs Law Group of Massachusetts and practices exclusively in special needs advocacy and planning, estate planning, and elder law. Mark received his JD from Northeastern University School of Law and his LLM in taxation from Boston University Law School. He is a former professor and director of the graduate program in elder law and estate planning at Western New England University School of Law, where he continues to teach as an adjunct status and teach courses on Medicaid, estate planning, retirement plans, grantor trust rules. He is also a certified elder law attorney and a member of the Council of Advanced Practitioners of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, a past president in 2007 of the Massachusetts chapter of NALA. Uh, Mark is admitted to practice in Massachusetts and also before the United States Supreme Court. So welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so, Mark, I thought it would be good just to begin our conversation um, by you providing just a, a brief overview to our listeners of what the SECURE Act is. Okay. Well, the SECURE Act has been brewing since like about two and a half years. Some form of it or another passed unanimously the Senate Finance Committee a couple of years ago, and then I think a year ago also, blah, blah. Suddenly, The SECURE Act passed the House 417 to 3 in May, and there it stayed until last December when a revised version um, was uh, part of the $1.7 bazillion uh, budget uh, or spending bill that was passed in December. And for the what it does is it changes the the way that retirement plans operate mostly what we care about is the post-mortem treatment of, of retirement plans how inherited retirement plans are treated so there are some other changes like they move the age of from 70 and a half to 72 they liberalized some things about making continuing contributions past age 72 uh, but the big deal was required minimum distributions after death. The old rule was that if you had a, quote, designated beneficiary, unquote, which meant mostly individuals who's uh, the oldest of of whom we could determine at the death of the retirement plan owner, um, then the uh, retirement plans, the minimum distribution rules for the retirement plans could be based on the life expectancy of that oldest beneficiary. If the beneficiary was, you know, a grandbaby at you know, age one, then you had about 85 years that you could stretch this out. And there were a couple of reasons why that was important, which I will talk about in a second. What the SECURE Act did was it said, yeah, you know what, we want our money now. And so uh, 10 years, that's the new rule. 10 years, all got to come out within 10 years. Now, it doesn't have to come out rateably over 10 years, because it all come out in the 10th year, but it has to come out within the 10 years. So if that was the only story, I don't know that we'd have an awful lot to talk about today. (laughs) What we have to talk about is that they made exceptions 
five exceptions in the May bill that almost became law. Uh, May of 2019 bill that almost became law. Was, do, do you want me to continue or have I, am I talking too much without letting you breathe? <laughs> no, I think that's great. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to move on and kind of explain some of those five exceptions, sure. I think that would be great. Um, so the five exceptions were the surviving spouse, although that was less interesting than it might sound because the surviving spouse still had other options like a rollover, which is what most surviving spouses do. But it could be interesting in, in certain respects, you know, for the second marriage, things like that. Uh, this, the second one uh, was um, children, and I emphasize children, not tiny ones, not stepchildren, not not grandchildren, not people you wish were your children, children. I'm saying under the age of 18, but really what the statute says is who have not attained the age of majority, which has stirred up some more con uh, controversy, but basically, you know, it's the kiddies. So they get to use their life expectancies until they're 18, and then the 10-year rule kicks in. Then we have, there's a final, uh, I'm going to skip to number five because three and four are the really interesting ones to me. Number five is anybody who is not more than 10 years younger than the, um, than, the, than the deceased plan owner gets to use their life expectancy. We don't really need to get into the rationale for that, but it does make good sense. Mm -hmm. Now, the last one, or the last two rather, uh, people with disabilities, that's number three, and uh, people who have a chronic illness, and that's number four. Why is all this important is because this came out in May, and the initial reaction of most of us special needs attorneys was, oh, look, wasn't that nice? They made an exception for, for the disabled population. And I looked at it, and I said, Houston, we have a problem yeah. because it accepted individual disabled beneficiaries, but not SNITs, not special needs trust. And the, the extraordinarily complica uh, complicated rules that you will find in the uh, 2002 regulations governing uh, Section 401A9, which is the minimum distribution rules, um, basically, if, if you look at those, it's like, yeah, you're out of luck. So if you name a SNIT, now you're back and stuck with, depending upon your view of things, either the five or the 10-year payout rule. Why is that a problem? Well, two problems, and this is what I was alluding to about three minutes ago. Number one, the stretch out over a life expectancy versus, you know, five or 10-year payout is not just kicking the, the can down the road. It's not merely uh, delaying the inevitable tax pain. It is more real net present value after tax dollars if you can stretch out those, those withdrawals because it's you know, people are unfamiliar. I hope people are familiar enough with retirement plans to know that the money's taxed when it comes out of the plan. So, and and it's really powerful. The 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 each like decade that you add, it just gets it follows like a hockey stick curve. Um, how much more real after tax money, uh, net present value dollars it represents for your the people you love. Um, I. You can work that out with a spreadsheet if you want and so forth. Years ago, I actually, I'm a former electrical engineer and I worked it out algebraically. And, and it's just, there, there's a, there's a, a key factor in an exponent that just blows up over time. That's one thing. And the other big factor is 
Um, even if you can get the stretch with a, with a, a trust, which we'll talk about shortly, um, as I think uh, our audience probably all knows, um, trusts hit the maximum uh, 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 federal uh, income tax rate. Uh, what is it this year? Is it 12950 I can't remember. It was 12750 last year. I can't remember what it is this year. It's adjusted right. for inflation, but it, it's a mm-hmm. tiny number. Uh, compared with individuals and, and married couples who hit the top rate at you know like four or five six hundred thousand dollars of annual income, mm-hmm. with the way that the the Secure Act was uh, from May through December pending, uh, we had a situation where S and T beneficiary that are disabled population, most of whom let's say uh, are uh, need a, uh, a third party S and T supplemental needs trust to. Uh, to receive an inheritance were being treated as though they, rather than being the most vulnerable of our population, they were being treated as the most well-off. They were being treated like Bill Gates and so forth. You can afford to pay us tax at the top federal rate. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So what happened? So I wrote an issues brief for the tax steering committee of the national Academy of elder law attorneys um, in June and July that got moved to the uh, that that was approved went to the public policy committee of NALA, who approved it. That went to our lobbyist uh, David Goldfarb, who submitted that to the um, to some uh, staffers at the uh, House Ways and Means Committee. It ended up in front of the Joint Committee on Taxation, where there's some there's some of the staffers there just brilliant tax professionals, and but we didn't know any of this. We didn't know what was going on. And then on December 16th, I get an email from David Goldfarb that says, oh, look, we have a new Secure Act that's that's before the House today. Uh-huh. And they have like, you know, 24 hours to figure out if they're going to vote yes or no on this <laughs> $1.7 bazillion. That's a real number, by the way, $1.7 bazillion <laughs> budget of, of which some tiny little pieces, the Secure Act, I'm sure they're all mm-hmm. going to study it carefully before they vote. Right. So that was on December 16th. David asked me, you know, are we good? And I said, I don't know. I mean, and then <laughs> it was signed into law on, on December 20th. And it was only in the ensuing weeks that we've been able to, to study this and figure it out. I think bottom line is I think that the, um, so what happened was, is that the, um, the Joint Committee on Taxation um, uh, introduced some provisions to allow, uh, I'm going to say special needs trusts, so basically trusts, certain trusts for the benefit of and, the, and solely for the benefit of a, a disabled person or a chronically ill person to be able to use the life expectancy and stretch out those mm-hmm. payments um, and even though it's going to an SNT. So strangely and perversely, um, now SNITs have gone from being um, the, the, like the worst thing out there to the most favored uh, mm. thing out there. I think it's really interesting to hear too, the influence that you had. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, the influence that you had on the secure act and the changes that incurred from the original, original draft to what what came out in December, um, which I think is great. And also the changes to the special needs trust, because 
as a elder law attorney, that used to be something that I was very mindful of when planning, um, you know, with a family that had a child that had a disability and we had a large retirement account, um, you know, something. So this is something that really does benefit those situations and those families. So other than, you know, the, the changes with the special needs trust, you talked about the the minors. And I want to come back to that for just a quick second. Um, you know, in each state, I know the rules are different, but in Pennsylvania, an, a child that's under the age of 18 can't inherit money outright. A guardianship is then needed. Um, are you aware of if there's any rules regarding trust for minors? Well, here's the, not there are not specifically, but I but I, I I will tell you what what needs to be done. So the, we got to step back and talk a little bit about pre Secure Act. Mm-hmm. How could a trust qualify for the lifetime um, distributions, post mortem lifetime distributions? Are we okay to talk about that? Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Okay. So. I don't know. Again, I think that we're, we probably have an audience here that's uh, got a, a wide diversity of uh, uh, understanding and knowledge. So I, I don't want to leave anybody behind, but I don't want to bore people either. So I'm going to do my best to kind of thread that needle. What's explicitly um, provided for in the 2002 regulations is a conduit trust for a single individual. And a conduit trust means, okay, so I die, I leave assets and trust for a single beneficiary, and I require, and, and the trust says that whatever the trustee pulls out of the retirement plan um, after I die, uh, whether it's the minimum distributions or more, whatever it is, with some potential adjustments for uh, allocation of, of uh, trust expenses and so forth, uh, pro rata to the retirement plans and so forth, but forget that. Basically, whatever comes out of the plan has to be turned around and forthwith um, paid out to the beneficiary. Now, there's other issues there. I think it can be to or for the benefit of the beneficiary and still comply, but that's another another discussion. So basically, it means that a great deal of the benefits that you are seeking in, in trust planning, um, asset protection for beneficiary, for, uh, you know, your third-party beneficiaries, um, protection of the beneficiaries from their own bad behavior in certain circumstances or uh, you know, public benefits protections, things like that. Uh, conduit trusts aren't real good about that, right? Because they just, all you're doing is delaying the receipt of the funds, but the funds eventually mm-hmm. get out there and, and, and usually in a fairly uncontrolled manner. The other was something that is not, oh, and then if you have multiple current beneficiaries of a trust, um, that gets a little bit more sticky. Um, Natalie Choate, I always have to give a shout out to Natalie Choate, without whom none of us, uh, none of us would know anything without her. Um, and if you don't have her magnum opus um, retire on, on the uh, state planning for retirement plan benefits on your bookshelf, you really need to. And I don't, I, I have no financial interest in any of this. Um, and she's not a relative of mine or anything else, but I still, I still promote her anyway. If you go to a tax plan.com, uh, you can, you can order her book there. And I, I believe she, I don't know if she's working on a new edition now or not, or if she's just going to do some updates for secure. Um, but the most recent edition was the eighth edition in January of last year. So you need that book. Everybody needs that book. Um, now, so Natalie has some stuff in there about, well, I don't know, you know, like about how this exactly works 
when you have multiple beneficiaries. Um, I think most estate planners are kind of ignoring the problem and blowing it off. And, and it's just like, fine, if you have got multiple beneficiaries. But now on to the other one. There's really nothing explicit in the regulations that allows for the next thing, which is called a, a retirement plan accumulation trust. And within a, with a retirement plan accumulation trust, the idea is that if we have certain conditions um, whereby we know from for, at, at the death of the retirement plan owner, we know for an absolute fact the what, the shortest life expectancy of anybody who could ever possibly get a dime of these retirement plan benefits, even if they were taken out of the retirement plan and held in trust for a few years and eventually distributed, we have to know who the who, who has the shortest life expectancy. So the idea is if you can arrange that, you still fit within the regulations, even though the regulations don't explicitly tell you anything like this. And that's a retirement plan accumulation trust. Okay, there's some other controversy within that whole realm, but we won't talk about that today. So, um, well, I mean, you know, we could talk for days. I mean, I teach an entire right, setup, right. semester on this, you know, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, the idea is that um, th- this is great, right? So we could have uh, an SNT that mm-hmm. uh, could, could be an accumulation trust and it could take out the uh, distributions over the life expectancy of the beneficiary and the trustee could decide year by year um, uh, what to do about, you know, like if, if, it's, if, if I had a, you know, a thirty thousand uh, dollar minimum required distribution that year. Okay, <clears throat> and maybe I, I'm sure I have some other income, but pretend that's it. Thirty thousand dollars of income because I had a thirty thousand dollar withdrawal that I had to take from the IRA. What am I going to do? And I know that I can run up the tax. Well, some of it, you know, I can deal with because I've got trustee fees and things that are a deduction uh, against income. Okay, fine. That leaves me with some left over and. Do I have useful things I can spend the money on that, that carries out DNI and reduces my my taxable income even more? But maybe I don't. And if I don't, I just have to suck it up and I'm going to pay uh, at lower than 37% rates below 12,000. I think it's 950. I can't remember. Maybe it's 850. But below the you know the the the, the top bracket um, and then everything else, I'm just going to have to suck it up and pay the 37%. But the trustee gets to figure that out every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's flexibility. And we don't, and, and the longer we can do the stretch, like I say, besides the fact that we have more real um, after-tax money, uh, net present value, the fact is that, we, you know, we can, we can pay at the lower rates, the, the lower income tax rates, the lower brackets, um, because we get a new set of brackets every year. Um, right. So... All right, so that's the uh, that's how the accumulation trusts work, and so now what do we do about these? Uh, now let's go back to the to the you know the kids. Mm-hmm. So that works for the for the for everybody. That works for trust for kids. Um, I have a very strong bias as a planner for leaving assets and trust for kids, even if it was, mm-hmm. you know, even if the kid is Bill Gates, right? right. Uh, you know, what the heck, right? You know, suppose somebody comes along and wipes them out someday financially. I, I don't know mm-hmm. how, but suppose they did. Hey, you know, now he's got some money socked away in an asset protected trust, et cetera. So, um, you know, to me, the trusts are almost always better. Right. Um and so, you know, I pretty much accumulation trusts became my default years ago. 
uh, you know, I started out with conduit trust, but then I, I switched to, to accumulation trust because it almost always seems to make sense to me to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what do we got? Well, accumulation trusts, that's a problem. So let's look at a minor child, say three years old. If I have an accumulation trust, all right, I, I can qualify uh, for the 10-year rule because I, I can still have identifiable beneficiaries. Now, by the way, the, the term identifiable has almost pretty much lost all of its meaning mm. because now, because we have a 10-year rule, Unless we're dealing with those very rare exceptions where we can use life expectancies, like for a, a properly structured SNP, um, now um, I, I uh, it, it doesn't matter if the oldest beneficiary is Uncle Methuselah, because right? I mean, as long as uh, if you still read the regulations literally, which no longer really seem to make any sense. I, it, I have to have somebody with an identifiable life expectancy and an identifiable person. So I have to know the life expectancy. It used to matter if it was Uncle Methuselah, you know, that might give me three years. Right. Right. Or a year. But now it doesn't matter. I got to, if I if I have identifiable, I got 10 years. If I have a non-designated beneficiary, like if I name an estate, now I'm still mm-hmm. stuck with the old five year rule. Right. So right. what do we do about the minor tykes? And now I, I hear breathing at your end. Are we running out of time for the second? Yeah. So what I thought we might do, um, like you said, there's so much information and gosh, we could spend so much time talking about this, but what I thought we could do is just kind of cut it off here. Um, and, and we're going to continue our conversation in the next episode for all of our listeners to hear more about what Mark has to say about planning for minors and trusts and accumulation trusts. We're going to delve into that topic even deeper in our next podcast. But Mark, for our listeners, if they have a question for you, or they want to reach out to you in any way, is there a way that they could contact you? Um, yeah, my email, which is kind of long. It's uh, M Worthington. So M like in the name, my first name, Mark. M Worthington, W-O-R-T-H-I-N-G-T-O-N at specialneeds-law.com. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Mark. And thank you all for listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and find all our past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. See you next time.